0: hello uh, welcome to the hp lovecraft book club um in this episode i will be looking at a little bit of lovecraft's poetry uh from late 1920s early 1930s in fact I, i'm only gonna look at really one poem um from this period there may be some others i don't have that uh collection of all his poetry the 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 ancient track so i'm probably missing a few but this poem i'm gonna look at today it's uh a big one um it might i might not be able to do it all in one one episode but we'll, we'll see how it goes I, i'm not as comfortable talking about the poems as i am talking about the stories um but we'll see how it goes um so what i'm going to be looking at today is is fungi from Ugoth. um so that of course will remind us of whisper in darkness um the, the fungi from Yogath specifically refers to one stanza in this poem, Cycle. It's actually 36 sonnets um, and the title comes from, as far as I can tell, one of these. Um, it's not so much a description of the whole cycle itself. Um, now this was written in uh, the winter of 1929 to 1930 and I just talked about the, uh, in the series on the letters, this period of time. So I mentioned how in this winter he was sending copies of fungi uh, from Yugoth to, uh, to some of his correspondents to get their comments. This is also around the time he wrote The Mound and The Whisper in Darkness. So it's this is an important period in Lovecraft's career because it's really when he starts to develop his own voice, really, and start to not only his own voice, but really develop doing his world building. Right, so that's what I think is kind of important about this poem, and important about the stories of this time—the mound, whisper in darkness, the mountains of madness—much more so than any of the other stories. He's really trying to connect a lot of his ideas together into something we now call like a mythos, right? I, he called it the Arkham Cycle stories, I guess. But um, you know, we now kind of see these his works as connected. But really, it's only his later works—the stuff he writes in you know from twenty-nine to to his death, that really fit together into a kind of a coherent universe. And I think this poem does a lot to move in that direction, right? It's not perfect. It's not like a, it's not a concordance or anything like that. That's going to be a skeleton key to unlocking everything in Lovecraft's universe. But it does show him trying to connect different themes together so uh this was first published in uh beyond the wall of sleep by arkham house in 1943 so it it was not published during his his lifetime um but that doesn't matter um it was written in late in you know early 1930 so that's why we're going to talk about it at this point um now as i said it, it, it consists of 36 sonnets the rhyme scheme and uh, is not consistent throughout, but that's okay. It's not something I really want to get into. I want to get more into the themes and the, and the narrative here. I guess the big kind of the basic debate I guess we can have about fungi from Yugoth is: is this one story, or is it more like an anthology kind of setup where the first few stanzas definitely seem connected together into one story, um, or the first few um, sonnets I should say are connected into one. Story and then From there we branch off into um, You know a bunch of little stories sometimes a couple of sonnets go together and they seem to be connected There are some characters that seem to come back and recur We have the narrator who kind of recurs through it but he seems to be in different places In different times and having different experiences so uh, That's kind of one way to look at it. Is it's kind of a framed uh, anth- Anthology of sonnets that speak to different aspects of Lovecraft's kind of philosophy and ideas. And so now there's a lot of callbacks to earlier stories. You're like, oh, that reminds me of of the Nameless City. Or that reminds me of a dove of Selefus. Or that reminds me of the White Ship or, or something. Or we see the mentioning of Innsmouth. So... And this and we see dreamland's places and even there's locations that are developed by other weird fiction writers like Robert E. Howard. They get name dropped here. So he's trying to piece these things together and he uses these sonnets to sort of do that. And yes, there does seem to be a single narrator and a bit of a guide that kind of takes him around these places. But he's not very consistent. If, If it was a consistent story, it'd be easier to, I think, identify that that plot or that narrative. And it's not really there. Uh, however, some people do present this as a single narrative. Uh, in fact, we got uh, the HP the Lovecraft Wiki, which is the fan wiki for, for Lovecraft, or at least one of them, which uh, says, Fungi from Yugoth is a sonnet sequenced by supernatural writer HP Lovecraft that constitute a continuous first-person narrative. narrative, narrative. It concerns a person who obtains an ancient book of esoteric knowledge that allows them to travel to other planets and strange parts of the universe. Um so yeah, I guess that's true, but it's the narrative is really, really loose if there is a continuous narrative. Um so I'm gonna kinda take the middle ground here, I guess, is that there are it's certainly legitimate to look at it as one continuous narrative, but I think it might be more fruitful to actually these see these as different more loosely connected stories that are sort of framed by this this overall plot of a guy finding this book that is somehow a gate and it takes him around different places but it's you know i think either way you want to look at it is fine it doesn't really change one's experience of reading these these poems because and it is a pretty great experience i do urge people to read these if they haven't yet Uh, i'm not the biggest fan of lovecraft's poetry but this is a pretty mature poem cycle um that that does a lot, I think, to, to connect different things he's been working on and different themes. And so before I get into this too much, I want to say, I, 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 just to simplify it, and I, I think different readers would come up with different themes maybe that they want to emphasize, but I found really five themes that I think are, are things that I'm going to come back to a lot as I talk about these various uh, sonnets. Um, one is the sea and ports it comes up so much it's 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 almost like we're returning to the dreamland stories in just the constant references to ports and port cities and and uh, the ocean and ocean creatures and birds and all these kinds of things we see the first mention of innsmouth innsmouth of course becomes a city uh a new england city that he explores in some depth and story we're going to be looking at pretty shortly But, uh, it doesn't seem really closely connected to Innsmouth directly, um, except by the name, but there is, uh, it's kind of, it looks the same. It has some similar looks and it's connected to the sea. So that's similar to it, but yeah, I don't know. He's got an idea of Innsmouth for sure. So maybe it is the Innsmouth from the stories, but, but I don't know. I'm not, I'm not, I'm agnostic about that. I'm agnostic about quite a lot of things in this, um, poem cycle. But anyways, what I'm not agnostic about is the fact that the sea is very, very much on his mind here. And of course, that's been a theme of this whole podcast is is the sea and the Atlantic and, and interconnections by the sea. And here the sea is a much more ominous thing. It's, it's really connected to the next theme too, which is memory and exploration. Um, so much of this, these poems are about memory. They're about remembering things and having that memory sort of restored and then some kind of fear is incorporated into that act of remembering there's anxiety about forgetting or not remembering things or not knowing things so normally in this story is kind of the memory is the realize you know you find figure out something horrible when you remember something but in these stories you often have places where the narrator goes to visits where the lack of memory is the cause of fear but other times memory is a source of fear something's uncovered and it's like oh i remember that but it's a little bit different so that kind of thing happens a lot. And that's tied up to this exploration. The whole, if you do want to connect these as one story, you know, what seems to be happening is, yeah, he finds this book. This allows him to travel to different places on Earth and in the cosmos and have different experiences. And a guide sort of takes him around that, these places. But, you know, it's an act of exploration, right? Or active discovery, discovering new towns and, and digging down into... Uh, underground worlds, or going off into space, seeing different planets. Uh, so all these, you know, seeing kind of experiencing cosmic horror, but also kind of the underground horror and lost civilizations. And there's a constant act of exploration, right? And that's tied to to memory. So the sea is connected to this too. So the sea, memory, exploration, all sort of go together, I think, in the these these sonnets. Um, another is is dreaming and alienation which also seem to go together here quite often. It could be two separate themes, I guess, but they often are connected. These do very much sound like and feel like Dreamland's tales often, where we have a character who's dissatisfied with this world and this time we're in, and therefore this act of traveling through dreams, and sometimes it's very explicitly dreams in the, in the, in the sonnets, um, leads one to be increasingly alienated from our own world. And there's a couple of sonnets that are really core at this at the central about that theme. Uh, then we have, I guess, general the cosmic horror stuff, which he's been building up in his stories, um, but it and, and in his letters, he talks a lot about this, and he's really achieving it here. And it's he's going to do this in his later stories quite well, I think, especially um, Whispering Darkness, Mountains of Madness, Shadow of Time, Witch House. All these stories really do explore cosmic horror quite well, um, and so there's aspects of it here throughout the whole cycle. And then I think just generally how he's trying to world build, how he's doing a little bit of. Sometimes he's doing a little retconning. Sometimes he's trying to take ideas he had from different stories, like Niall Opatep shows up in here, Azathoth shows up here, and of course Azathoth was a major figure in *Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath*, um, and Niall Opatep was the was the guy like the servant of as the and that in that story uh we got dreamland's locations mentions we got the night gaunts make a reappearance here um so there's this effort i think of of, of world building so I, I, those are the five themes i want to emphasize as we go through the um the fun guy from you there's probably many more and I think there certainly are more there's like the lost knowledge theme but like the book the, the ancient books there's several characters who who use books for some kind of window at least two characters that I can think of the narrator and one other guy shows up who you know read strange books um, but these five things are the things that I saw the most I want to emphasize the most in this in this uh, this cycle of, of poems so yeah let's let's try to jump into this all right so the first uh, sonnet is called the book uh, and this uh, actually the first three do sort of go together to form a little story uh, maybe the fourth really the, no the first three really go together as a, as a bit of a, a tale um, but we start with uh, in the book He's in this port city so we start in a port town which i'm kind of going to assume is a new england town it kind of looks like that it's kind of an insmouthy sort of place with these old alleys and the keys um and kind of a forgotten town or, or region right the forgotten key that's i think an interesting kind of lovecraftian trope because you know that's places of commerce and action right um but the idea of a forgotten key that means the main connection between this town and the outside world is is lost and abandoned, right? So the town gets very isolated. That's, of course, what happens to Innsmouth is the once that was a very interconnected and global city in many ways. Um, and it gets sort of left behind. Um, Reeking of strange things brought in from the seas, Lovecraft writes here. So that's... Uh, you know, also something I think we kind of see in the Shadow of Innsmouth, which wasn't written that long after this. That's why I, I may mean, mention that that tale quite a lot because it, I do get that in- Innsmouth feel in a lot of these 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 um, tales. Um, we also have the kind of the ecology of the port city with the fog and the smoke and and all that. Um, anyways, he goes to this. Um, he finds this to- this store that's selling these old grimoires old books and it's all kind of rotting these books are piled up and decaying and he sees this book he enters this town um which is selling this stuff really cheap too so this is like an de- economically depressed area but there's this uh, fabulous uh store that's selling these he goes in and he just picks up a book it seemed at random he just took the nearest to him he says looks at it and becomes interested in it and wants to buy it but there's no seller and, but all he can hear is laughing from somewhere in the in the building. So that's the first stanza. of The book um, it really does a good job, I think, of setting this this locale. In fact, I probably would have almost preferred a story that like this that just kind of explores this whole community. But he does a pretty good job of exploring other port maritime towns throughout the, the, the story. But it does kind of f- f- merge into a more of a dreamlands type of tale later on. Kind of like The White Ship. Actually, I was reminded a lot of The White Ship when I was reading this too. Anyways, the second sonnet is called Pursuit. So essentially, uh, this is more of an action sonnet here where he just literally, he just steals the book because he can't, He's kind of freaked out, I guess, by the guy who's just, he just hears the laughing. He wants the book and he steals it and he starts running through these, this port town, right? And there's this great line here where like the windows, so like even the architecture is ominous and frightful for him, where even the windows peer, peer at him or seem to look at him. Quote, dull furtive windows in old tottering brick peered at me oddly as I hastened by. And thinking what they sheltered, I grew sick for a redeeming glimpse of clear blue sky. So he's trying to escape these old alleys to try to get to some open sea, uh, open air, open... Oh, daylight. Um, And he's being pursued, but what's pursuing him is the laugh. Quote, no one had seen me take the thing, but still a blank laugh echoed in my whirling head, and I could guess what nighted worlds of ill lurked in that volume I have coveted. And he feels like he's being chased. All right, so that's the pursuit. So in the third sonnet called The Key, we get some explanation of of why he was after a book in the first place. And we're told that he's having visions. Quote, um... At last the key was mine to these vague visions of sunset spires and twilight woods that brooded dim in the gulfs beyond this earth's precisions lurking as memories of infinitude. End quote. So the key is referring to the book. So we're being told the book, he gets home, right? He got, he. got The pursuit ends with him returning home. He, He's at his porch, uh, gets inside this heavy door. So there's kind of a dramatic moment where he, you know, gets safely inside his home. But he you know, and realize that this book is this key to a broader cosmos. So this is going to be this gateway into all these different sonnets. We're going to see all these different vignettes, uh, different places he's going to explore it very much. It kind of reminds you of Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath where where the character has this memory of of Kadath. Like I've been there before and I want to go back and then you have all these adventures on the way of getting there. The Thing is, it's not really clear. He gets there in this. Story. He doesn't quite get the satisfaction that um, you know, a more straightforward tale would tell. where yes, he'd eventually find it or, or, or whatever. Um, but we know what he's looking after. You know, what he's after and why he goes after this book because he wants this key to unlock these memories that he's had. Right. So that's that's basically that. So this these first three stances just basically set up the story. So the next uh, sonnet's called Recognition. And this is a, a creepy one. It's a nice one. So he's, he's moved into some new world here. Um, quote, the day had come again when as a child I saw just once the howl of old oaks gray with ground mist that unfolds and chokes. So he's moved into something. So he's, his memory, he remembers having been here before. Right now, where is he? Well, it seems he recognizes the place as Ugoth. Right, I knew this strange gray world was not my own, but Ugoth passed the starry voids, and then, now Ugoth in the Whisper in Darkness is, is the ninth planet. It's Pluto, right, Um, which was just discovered around this time. Um, So. I guess this this is where he is. Of course, we you know no idea what it is. That's of course the home of the Migo, right? The fungi from Yugoth and the whispering darkness. It's the Migo, but the Migo don't show up here. There's one stans, um, stanza about sort of um um about yeah it's stanza 14, the Star Winds about the world sort of being populated with fungus sprouts from Yugoth. Right? Are these the Migo? I, I'm not sure. I'm I'm kind of ambivalent about that. I'm not sure yet. This whole idea of the Migos yet, and I don't think maybe seeing this as a prequel to Whisper in Darkness, I don't think it makes much sense. But um, you know, both have this concept of fungi from Yugoth, I guess. But here he's in Yugoth, right? We get a description of it now. But what's really creepy about this is he he comes across this altar uh, in this herbage and you know and this is what he writes clings round an altar whose carved sign invokes that nameless one to whom a thousand smokes rose eons gone from unclean towers unpiled Um, so there's some kind of worshiping to this nameless one and he sees a body being feasted upon and sacrificed um, but not by men by some creatures and then he realizes that the body is his own in the next stanza, it's called "Homecoming." Uh, here we get a, a demon. Is this demon mentioned in the previous stanza? Um, maybe it's one of these these things at this altar. But anyways, the demon promises to take him home, and he begins to travel with him. And he says he's going to take him to a place by the sea with with a tower. Uh, this is how it's described: a high place of stare and tears, walled with marble balustrades that the wind sky winds comb. While miles below, a maze of dome on dome and tower on tower beside a sea lies sprawled. So this is what he tells this is He says, I'll take you to this place. Now, it was a bit creepy and a bit, bit uh, sarcastic about this, as he said, this was your home when you had sight. Right, so this was again, this kind of this you know, not literally, I don't think he's talking about sight here, but this memory. This because remember, our character, our narrator, remembered something, that's why he sought out the book. And so much of this is going to be about remembering places or not remembering places that he visits and having this memory sort of unlocked. Um, and so what that's what he means by when you remember this, like when you were a dreamer, it's really, I get the sense that this person was a dreamer, right? And he visited these places at some point in the past, but has lost the ability to do that. Um, and this book has allowed him to do this But here this demon Says I'll take you there right? I'll take you to the place that was your home Quote when you had sight So a nice uh, shout out there To this theme of memory So then in stanza six The lamp here's where it really starts To It seems that our consistent narration breaks A little bit right at least it seems to me um, First instead of um, The eye we have as as the narrator we have we we found the lamp inside these hollow cliffs whose chiseled sign no priest in thebes could read it seems we have like a team of explorers or so it seems like it's it's, it's in like a, in a different setting right now on this lamp are all these hieroglyphics the strange writing right and there's some oil still inside there's some like remaining oil that they really can't identify um and it's fretted with some obscurely patterned scroll and symbols hinting vaguely of strange sins so it's it's suggested it's kind of an evil lamp right Um, now now recklessly these explorers um not fearing the 40 centuries that this exists so this is before human civilization right 40 centuries um but they they decide to go they take it And in the tent, they light it, they light it, Um, they strike a match to, quote, test the ancient oil, and it lights up, and then they see shapes um, that, quote, have seared their lives with awe. So what are these shapes they see? It's not really clear. Is it connected to the previous narration? I don't know either. Um, But, um, or is it, is it the narrator and the demon who dug this up? Now, there's a couple vignettes here that do sort of go seem completely side stories, parallel stories, if you will, that that kind of are part of this world, but not really connected to the narrator's quest to find this this tower uh, against the sea, um, whatever, in, in awaken his memories. This is a very different type of awakened memory. It's a memory awakened through the the, phys- the, the actual act of archaeology and exploration. So in this sense, I'm reminded actually once st- another story that comes up a lot here, not just Innsmouth, is The Nameless City. Remember, there's several stanzas here that seem direct shout outs to stories like The Nameless City or uh, to look forward to stories like At the Mountains of Madness or The Mound, which was, I think, written around this at the very same time. Maybe he had finished The Mound before the winter of 29, 1930. Um, but it's right around this time, and that's also about going down and, and finding some lost civilization that predates human civilization. Very much, uh, in many ways, kind of a first draft of At the Mountains of Madness. So The Lamp, it's a good one. It's a, it's a nice vignette. It doesn't really fit into... This continuous narration we've sort of been experiencing in the first, you know, three, four, five stanzas, depending on how generous you want to be. Um, But it's the theme here of some ancient artifact that predates human civilization with strange writing that that you light and it reveals something. Right. That's a theme we've seen again and again in this podcast as we've been reading through Lovecraft's tales. All right. So next we have seven Zaman's Hill. Zaman, Zaman's hill. So this one also seems not very clearly connected to our narrator's narrator's quest. Um, you know, unless he's going there and observing these events, but there's no. I mean, the narrator's not present really here, in the, in this in the tale. There's no personal pronouns. Um, anyways, um, so we got this great hill near a town, near a town, right? Um, and quote a precipice against the main streets end. So it's it's a hill at the end of the main street of this town um, And it all these stories. I, I love this This is, is like Lovecraft's fondness for vernacular traditions appearing again the whispers the the beliefs of the common people here it's the belief that uh, This hill like eats animals and sometimes even lost boys boys go wandering up there, you know exploring the local community and and get lost until such a point that the the quote kin has ceased to hope um but mostly it's stories of, of just killed creatures so there's something up on that hill consuming whether it's the hill itself or some creature on it now the mailman one day and this is what he writes one day the mailman found no village there so the village is gone but there's still people and the people come out from aysbury to stare so that's the town i think um I don't know what what village here he's even referring to is missing because this town of Aylesbury still seems to exist, but he finds no town there um, and the people there tell him that he's crazy for um, having ever noticed this great hill's quote gluttonous eyes and jaws stretch wide like it's almost like physically the mountain is consuming these these creatures and the townspeople say you're wrong so there's like a sudden change in what was believed at one moment to what was believed popularly by the people in the next moment. It kind of works as a, as a discussion of memory, too. Our narrator, being someone who's remembered something but has seemingly to forgotten them, except in his most vague terms, and is trying to recall once again here. The whole town seems to have forgotten this, except this mailman. Of course, mailmen know the geography of towns much more intimately than most other uh, members of the town. All right, next we have the port stanza eight or sonnet number eight, I should say. Uh, the port. Uh, now this is our first introduction to Innsmouth um, and it's 10 miles from Arkham um, that he gets on this trail and he goes over a cliff over Boynton Beach and gets to Innsmouth. So I think the geography fits to what we see in The Shadow Over Innsmouth. So this seems to be the Innsmouth of the story, The Shadow Over Innsmouth, even though this isn't like a, you know, it doesn't connect directly to that, that story. But the geography, the location, the setting, the mood of it are very, very similar, all right? So uh, he sees Innsmouth in the head and he sees out to sea a, a ship going away, Right. Right. I, I think kind of works. This idea of Innsmouth being an abandoned, forgotten, neglected town in Shadow of Innsmouth. The, you know, the ship's going away from the town. You know, the, the town's losing its connections to the outside world, right? um but he also sees something kind of evil or ominous about the ship uh white as hard years of ancient winds could bleach is this how he describes the sail and of course that maybe reminds us of the white ship which isn't really evil necessarily um but but anyways it's there's something ominous about the white ship too i guess um So then with that, we get the description of, of the setting of Innsmouth, which is just creepy and gloomy. Uh, quote, whence I so often scan the distant town, the spires and roofs are there, but look, the gloom sinks on dark lanes as lightless as the tomb. So good old creepy Innsmouth that we, we know and love from, from the story. So, um, That's that. So this introduces that, that town. Um, so next uh, sonnet is the courtyard. So in the courtyard, we learn a little bit more about Innsmouth, particularly cults that seem to be chanting to strange gods. This might be this cult of Dagon. Again, we do know Lovecraft was conceiving of Shadow over Innsmouth at this point. Maybe this is a nice connection to that story. I've been, I've been kind of downplaying that, but but this, the mongrel throngs chant to strange gods and beat unhallowed gongs and crypts beneath followed alleys near the shore. That kind of strikes us as a, as a direct connection to to um shout over insmouth, the rotting fish-eyed houses leered at me that's a great little moment too where the we we saw it earlier in these poems where the he has this idea of the buildings with the windows of the buildings in that other port town wherever he initially was kind of spying on him and seeing him and here the the houses are are fish-eyed um which is really a great image so he enters his courtyard, presumably to meet the man that he's supposed to meet, I guess his guy, that demon. Um, but um, instead he experiences there these mad revels and in fact the dead walking. Quote, uh, when suddenly a score of windows burst into wild light and swarmed with dancing men, mad soundless revels of the dragging dead and not a corpse had either hands or head. So we get a, a kind of the walking dead here. And this feeds right into sonnet number 10, the pigeon flyers, where they seem to almost capture him. They took me slumming where gaunt walls of bricks bulge outward with a viscous stored up evil. And here there's some sort of uh, uh, ritual going on, but it's not really these undead creatures that are participating in the ritual. Instead, it's these birds who are uh, bringing from Thog, which is a a location that will be used by Robert E. Howard in in some of his stories later on, I guess Lovecraft comes up with his name first, and and Howard just uses it later on. Um, but they're bringing something from Thog, uh, you know, f- to kind of feed this ritual. But this seems to freak out the people he's with, the people, the corpse, right? The corpse that don't have heads or hands laugh. I mean, if we connect these two stanzas together, maybe they're maybe they're not as connected as I as I think. But it's one of those. Uh, questions that come up when you read a a cycle of poems like this especially if you're trying to piece them together things don't always work but here's what he writes the others laughed till struck too mute to speak by what they glimpsed in one bird's evil beak so there's something uh, something horrible that's been brought from i guess Ugoth or brought from some other um, location in the universe thog specifically it's, it's mentioned here all right then we get uh, 11 the well and this seems to be another aside so it's kind of like the mailman story the Zaman's hill where we seem to leave the narrator aside from his little quest in Innsmouth, and we kind of observe something else in in the universe and this is a nice little creepy story this this sonnet it, it kind of works as its own standalone story um, We are introduced to a man named Far farmer Seth. Atwood, who's 80 years old, he's trying to um, sink a well, but he only has his his son Eb to help him out, and he's kind of a uh, and he's already sort of sort of crazy, right? He went crazy because of this. Uh, "Quote: We laughed and hoped he'd soon be sane again, and it's, and yet instead, young Eb went crazy too. So I guess both have been driven mad by this act of trying to dig up this this well." right so they send i guess uh both Ab and seth athwood to the to the country county farm and like the local madhouse right um seth kills himself he he hacked an artery in his gnarled left arm committing suicide so after the funeral for this this um, farmer uh, they go out and they kind of dig up the well they rip out the bricks that they were using to close up the well and they saw these uh this like ladder iron handhold set that allowed one to go down and quote down a black hole deeper than any we saw and then we could say and yet we put the bricks back for we found the hole too deep for any line to sound so they tried to find out how deep the well is and they they couldn't so whatever drove this farmer's family and farmer and his family mad uh is connected to this well which is why they're trying to cover it up but uh, too little, too late, I guess. Uh, this this works as kind of his own nice little horror story, I think. So then we have the Howler. This is uh, sonnet number 12. And this one returns clearly to the narrator. Uh, they told me not to take the bridge's hill path. So I don't know if it's the aftermath to the Pigeon Flyer's sonnet or, or not. I, I do think these are not totally continuous. I, I'm pretty sure about that. The well doesn't seem to fit at all to these um previous to uh, the Pigeon Flyers and the Howler. But so is he still around Innsmouth or in the outskirts? But they tell him, don't take this Bridge Hills path because this is where some witch, Goody Watkins, was was hanged and he actually had destroyed the path in 1704. Uh, we get a specific date here. And he left uh, a, quote, monstrous aftermath. So he's told not to go there. So we got, again, those vernacular traditions, being kind of a source of warning and also containing some kind of memory that that's straight people don't necessarily have the squares i should say don't really necessarily have Um, but he goes anyways uh, on his exploration and he hears he sees this house and it seems really new and it's supposed to be a house from whatever the 17th century i suppose but it still seems really new and he's a bit freaked out about that um but he hears a howling from the the house and he runs away but first he glimpses before he runs away he sees what's making the howling. it's a 4 pod thing with human face um, so that's I think it's that's that actually reminds me of the thing in the moonlight that very very short story it's one of the revisions I think oh you know, that was the dream right that was the dream Lovecraft recount and later on it got published um, I think that had the 4 part creatures with the with the human face too, something similar, anyways. But he he flees, but before fleeing, he sees the the creature. And with that stanza, we kind of uh, move into almost another section. It's it's interesting. It's about the thir- the uh, the one th- the th- the th- one third point of the of the whole cycle. But he gets really much more cosmic at this point, where our narrator will begin to explore much more mysterious and, and cosmic places. It becomes much more like a dreamland's tale at this point. And the first of these, uh, Sonnet 13, is called Hesperia. Um, so somehow he enters into this uh, uh, place. Uh, we get some time here, winter sunset, it describes. There, there seems to be some time traveling, too, because he enters a gate. I don't know if he's using the book to do this, but he enters a gate of some forgotten years. So this is, again, kind of a memory of the past. He's returning to something he knows from his memory, from his past. But this world is a paradise. So this reminds me of the White Ship, where they do go to places that can be conceived of as paradises in that story. Um, here, quote, expected wonders burn in those rich fires, adventure fraught and not untinted with fear, a row of sphinxes where the way leaves clear towards walls and turrets quivering to far leers. So he gets caught of the ideal paradise city, something that was, that was a recurring motif in the Dreamland stories. Now, this location seems to predate humans. Quote, human tread has never soiled these streets, we're told. Um, and we can only sort of get there through dreams. Quote, dreams bring us close. But ancient lore repeats that human treads never soil these streets. So uh, these th- these two ideas sort of go together that uh, we can only get there through dreams, uh, but we can never quite get there even uh, through dreams. So it's it's very much like Kedahs in that way, right? Where he dreamed it, he experienced it. Carter dreams it, experiences it somehow, but can't really get back or fully remember how to get back to it. So the next one, uh, number fourteen, is Star Winds, and this is the. The one where we really get the mentioning of the fungi from Yugoth. So if, if they're crucial to everything that's going on in this cycle, uh, this might be a good stanza to to focus on. Now, it, it's really bizarre because we're the previous uh, sonnet was set in winter and now we have uh, autumn "Quote: It is a certain hour of twilight glooms, mostly in autumn when star winds pour down hilltop streets deserted out of doors. But shrewing early lamplight from snug rooms, the dead leaves rush into strange, fantastic twists. Is this still in Hesperia? I'm not sure if it is, but we do see uh, light from formal hot. So from a particular star um, that's visible in this autumn night. Now, this is, as I said, where we get the mentioning of the fungi sprouts, but it's, it's more metaphorical here. Quote, this is the hour when moonstruck poets know what fungi sprouts in Yugoth and what sense the tint of flowers fill Nithon's continents. So it's kind of those, those memories, right, and those experiences uh, that, that, that some of us, the sensitive types, right, can, can lock into, Right. Um but we're also told that for each dream these winds to us convey, so we're told this 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 the sprinkling of the fungi from Yugoth or the sprinkling of these these dreams and memories, but a dozen of ours are swept away by everyone that's that's achieved right so it's also about forgetting and our inability to hold on to to what we've remembered so again this this story like the or this sonnet like the previous one really does raise this to to the level of a of a cosmic story or at the very least a dream one story it doesn't very much feel like uh, the stuff we've read about in those in those dream ones tales um, but something really wonderful is going on here with this idea of the star winds fertilizing our minds with this fungi from yugoth um, but also you know but it's only falling for some of us right for most of us it's forgotten and not remembered right which is true of dreams isn't it like Many of us don't remember our dreams, but some of us are able to remember our dreams. And Lovecraft was someone who seemed to have remembered his dreams quite vividly, if we believe his, you know, his story, you know, that he wrote some of his stories from, from very vivid dreams. So that brings us to uh, stanza, or sonnet, I keep saying stanza, sonnet uh, 15, Antarkos. So this one now we're in a polar world. So he we went from winter to autumn to a to a polar world. Um, well, well, he's it's actually not directly. He's not in a polar world. He's being told of a polar world by a great bird. So he's in a dream. He's in his dreams, and a great bird whispers to him, telling him of this polar world, of a black cone. This is a great visual. A black cone pushing up from the the ice sheet. Right. So it's it's kind of like the mountains of madness, right? Where there's something it seems are, uh you know, humans couldn't have made it right. It's something physical that must be natural because humans have never been there or haven't explored it yet. Um But he's like, no, it, it you may think it's natural, but it's not right. Quote, um, hither, no living earth shapes take their courses and only pale auroras and faint suns glow in that pitied rock whose primal sources are guessed at dimly by the elder ones. If men should glimpse it they would merely wonder what trickery mound of nature's build they spied so they would assume it's it's natural. Um, but in fact it's not and the, some of the elder ones know something about this but even for them it's kind of vague right so this is really about deep history this is a a very important theme in lovecraft's later works i think this really fits into the whole world building that lovecraft is aiming at in this this story and in so many of his later stories is that there really is a much deeper history of course he's explored that earlier in things like the nameless city but never to quite the the level he does in at the mountains of madness and and that's certainly this is really hard not to it's not hard hard not to think about at the mountains of madness when you when you read this particular, um, sonnet. So next we have a uh, sonnet 16, the window. All right. So in the window we have, it's, it's more of a flashback, uh, sonnet here. Uh, the house was old, with tattered wings outthrown, of which no one could ever keep half track. So I don't know if that's contemporary where our narrator is, but he was there in the past. Uh, because he says uh in dream plague childhood quite alone, I used to go in this house and see this this old this old window which was sealed with that was previously sealed so this kind of reminds us of the well yeah you know, the the well the sound at number eleven where something was covered up right but as a child he saw this um and Now, one later day, I don't know if that today is it—is it in the contemporary period, Uh, must be in his adulthood because he brings masons there. So he hires workers to come there and break free, you know, dislodge the bricks. I don't know why he just couldn't use a sledgehammer to do it. But uh, he brings masons to do that, to see what's behind it. And it's a gate to another world. Quote Burst from ancient alien voids that yawn beyond. They fled, but I peered through and found unrolled all the wild worlds of which my dreams have told. Right, so this seems to be something in his childhood that he pursued. So it's, it's just like the book; he had some kind of memory of his past, and later on, as an adult, he pursues it. And this, through a book, here's kind of another way at that, through trying to dig through this mysterious window that's been boarded up to a gate to the other world. Uh, then we have number 17, a memory. So it's a memory. We're told it's a memory. So it's something from, from his past too, just like the window uh, seems to have been from his past. And anyways, he's out uh, in some kind of starlit night. Uh, great steps and a rocky table lands is, is our description of the setting. But there's also these campfires uh, shedding feeble light throughout there. So several campfires, Right. So he goes and observes that and there sees a cloaked figure, a cloaked form against the campfire glare, rose and approached and called me by name. So he somehow knows him, um, staring at the dead face beneath the hood, I ceased to hope because I understood. So he somehow recognizes that man or or understands him. It kind of reminds us a little bit of maybe of the festival where you see some kind of cloaked person and. And when their are faces revealed, there's some kind of realization about one's own past or um, one's relationship to this man. It's it's not really clear here, but it's definitely it feels like a, something Lovecraft would have written about in some of his did write about in some of his stories. All right. Then we have uh, the Gardens of Ing uh, sonnet 18. So this is a nice one about memory and uh and change and 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 there's kind of some terror involved in that. So we're given a description of an ancient garden Which seems fairly pleasant, but they always turn out kind of creepy in in Lovecraft stories and some of his revisions too have, have scenes like this. I'm thinking like the meadow um, It's kind of like this where you have something that's on the surface is is kind of beautiful and pleasant but when you actually experience it it becomes very um, There's something really off about it and um, and here's where memory doesn't conform to what, what he experiences. So, but we first we get this nice description of this garden. There would be terraced gardens, rich with flowers and flutter of birds and butterfly and bead, and there would be walks and bridges arching over, warm lotus pools reflecting temple eaves, and cherry trees with delicate bows and leaves against a pink sky where the herons hover. Um, and then there would be a gate, right? Right. Uh, quote all would be there hadn't for had not old dreams flung open the gate to that stone Latin maze so this gate would open it up so you could enter it right um but uh he gets there and there's no longer any gate so he's not able to to enter so there's a bit of a, a inability to access this this beauty um and this garden because of the lack of a gate but how I kind of read this was how the memory or the understanding that one had consciously didn't conform to what was really there. Um, so anyways, what are we at? Yeah, we're, this is exactly halfway through the fungi of Yugrath. So I'm going to stop here and I'm going to come back and, and kind of reread the second half of this. Um, maybe take a few more notes and, and see where it takes us. This is much more cosmic in the, in the second half. Than, than the first half um, But I think this, this might be uh, This might require two whole episodes To, to cover adequately So that's what I'm going to do So I'm going to um, Just kind of stop here temporarily and, and, and start again later With, uh, with a whole new episode uh, Where I'll reintroduce the, the story And then finish up with the second half So this ends my Review, my thoughts on the first half Of Fungi from YouGoth so in the meantime, if you have anything you want to add to this, there's obviously going to be much I, I skimmed over and didn't fully in, investigate here. Um, poetry is a bit of a struggle for me, but this this one is f- fairly easy to comprehend. It's just uh, it's just how do everything fits together. Does it fit together in a coherent narrative or not? I think that's the big mystery here. And all the loose ends that he never fully explains is, um, you know, I think a lot of this is more about mood and, and setting up. Kind of the emotional and thematic foundations of his, of his of the broader mythos he creates in his later later career. At least it functions that way. I don't know if he's doing it consciously, but it it sort of functions that way in hindsight. So, anyways, that's my opening thoughts about fungi from Ugoth. I'll come back probably tomorrow and and finish up recording this, um, but it probably won't be uploaded for a few more days. So, uh, anyways, thanks for listening to this. Uh, sorry for disappointing you if I didn't. Quite coet it the way you would like to but but please leave me your comments uh and give me your thoughts about this story uh, from your own point of view it would help me out a lot so uh that's gonna be it for now thanks for listening see you next time